But today we are in Amos chapter 9. We're going to do the first half of this. And I want to begin by discussing uh, what ideas are for the biblical writers. There are no bare concepts in the Hebraic worldview. And when I say Hebraic worldview, I mean the way of looking at the world and living in the world that is put before us in the scriptures by the culture of ancient Israel, the culture of the people of Jesus' day, the culture of the apostles who wrote the New Testament, the way of viewing the world and living in it that they would have been raised with, the way that they would have conceived of things. We thought about this last week when we talked about the waters. If you lived in Jesus' culture and Jesus calmed the wind and the waves with a word, now that's impressive to us. That's impressive, right? We'd be like, wow, that's something. But for a Jewish person, that was unprecedented. No prophet in the history of the world had ever done that. Moses parted the Red Sea by praying, right? And there were other times where Elijah prayed fervently and God stopped sending rain and sent rain, but nobody simply spoke to the water. The only one who had ever done that before was God when he created. So when they saw Jesus do that, is it surprising to you that the disciples were terrified like dead men? That's what the scriptures say. Well, of course they were. And they all said to each other, who is this? And so in their worldview, they knew what control of the waters meant. We may be impressed by the miracle, but not quite understand it the way that they did. And so I'm going to help you with some other key terms today to think of it in a more Hebraic way, a more biblical way is another way to say that. And there are no bare concepts in the Hebraic worldview. That's to say that part of the meaning of ideas and concepts for the people who wrote the Bible requires enactment. You cannot understand the meaning of a word for this culture from a dictionary. That's a start. It's good to know what words are meant to imply, but you have to actually try them out in your real life before you know what they mean. So you might think you know what love means when you're at the altar getting married, but you really know what love means when you are at the funeral home. The whole life has to be lived to really understand what the word means. You have a concept of it, but that's not enough. We've been in our Sunday school class through the book of James, which we'll start again next week. We've been discussing this this in reference to the word faith. For a Greek or a Roman person, that's the wider culture in which Jesus lived, but not Jesus' culture. He was Jewish. But in the wider Roman and Greek culture in the days of the New Testament, faith was just something that was a mental thing. Faith was just things you believed. But it didn't have to translate into action. Maybe it should translate into action, but it doesn't have to. For a Greek or a Roman person, you can believe one thing and do another. That's perfectly consistent with that culture. But for a Hebraically formed person in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day or in the culture of the Old Testament, that would not make any sense. What you believe, you do. And what you do is what you believe. For a Hebraically-minded person, if you say you believe this, but you're doing this, you really believe what you're doing. You don't really believe anything you don't do. So they live in a different culture. They think differently. And that's part of the reason that James wrote his epistle. He was trying to explain the Jewish God. I mean, he's the God of all creation, but he revealed himself to Israel in a way he revealed himself to nobody else. 
He's trying to, to talk to them about what that God wants when they live in a culture in which God can tell them he wants faith, but they have no clue what he's talking about. He might as well have told them he wanted that. Oh, what's that? You want gibberish? So I call these Hebraic concepts enfleshed concepts. They have to be lived out. So for a person who wrote the scriptures, somebody like Paul, somebody like James, somebody like Peter, certainly like Jesus as he spoke to us, like Isaiah, like Amos, if you claim to have faith, then you would, of course, be doing what you claim to believe. That's how it works. And if you're doing otherwise, then you don't have faith in that. You have faith in something else. Right? You might believe in health, but if all you do is sit on a couch, then you don't really believe in health. You might like the idea of health, but you really believe in what you're doing. So that's the way that they lived. It's not a judgment on us. We think differently, but that's how they thought. So to understand terms like faith, hope, or love, for instance, we need more than a dictionary. One's understanding must be gained through actually living these things out. And that's what Paul means to say when he writes those words and what Jesus meant to say when he spoke them. Even more, and this is a critical piece, as Christians, we don't just live out these words any way that we see fit. We can't learn what faith is, for instance, by worshiping in a pagan shrine or by consulting a philosopher or a guru or Webster's Dictionary. These words, the writers of of the Christian scriptures tell us, find their ultimate meaning in Israel's experiences with God. What does the word faith mean? Well, let's look at what God does. What does the word hope mean? Let's look at what God has done. What does the word love mean? Let's look at what God does. How do I know what it means? I have to see God do it. And when I see God do it, now I know what it means. That's the context for them. And that's why the Hebrew language is so important, because that language was invented by God. Now, you might say, humans wrote that. Yes, but they wrote it living with God, and their words changed based on how God used the language to describe what he was doing. In other words, God defines what a word or a concept means by acting in history and then telling us what he did. So God does something and he says, I just loved you. And we might go, what? That was love? Yes. Okay. It's not what I thought love was, but I guess it is. There's no more fundamental and flesh concept than that of love. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is love? What did the Apostle John mean to convey when he wrote the following in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8? Beloved, Let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in the Gospel of John, we just sang it today. What did Jesus mean to reveal to us when he responded to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3.16 with the following explanation? For God so loved the world, and just a little Greek, New Testament's written in Greek, I think translated Hebrew, but... It doesn't mean that he loved the world so much. The Greek here says he loved the world in this way. He so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. That he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What did he mean to say? 
Well, words are a little bit like cups or glasses. So we have a communion cup, right? And the cup has a pretty fixed shape. I mean, this is going to be this shape no matter what you put in it. But you can put a lot of things in this. I don't have to put wine or grape juice in it. I could put oil in it, right? I could put some sort of toxin in it. I could put dirt in it. Words are a little bit like that. They have um, a shape that's somewhat consistent, but the meaning with which they're filled can be very subjective. The person saying them often has their own unique understanding of what they mean. Love for us today, that little glass, can be filled with a lot of different fluids. It can refer to faithfulness. It can refer to longing. I would love to do that. It can refer to the act of sex. It can refer to nostalgia. Oh, didn't you love that when we used to do that? It can refer to a pleasant stimulation. I love how that makes me feel. It can refer to unconditional acceptance. You love your child no matter who they are, what they are, what they do. The word was varied in the wider Greco-Roman culture in which Jesus and the apostles lived as well. In fact, ancient Greek had four distinct words for love, and taken together, they cover a similar variety of experiences that our one word covers today. Love can mean many things. It all depends on the culture and the context and the person in which it is spoken or through which it is spoken and in which it is heard. However, remember my opening comments. The truest meaning of a word for the people of God lies in the actions of God and God's correlation of those actions with a word. God defines what he means when he speaks. If the Apostle John is correct in saying that God is love, then it is to the behaviors of God we must look to define love. Love does not define God. God defines love. And this has caused great difficulty for contemporary readers of the scriptures. Why? Well, some of what God has done, especially in dying for us in the person of Jesus, that seems loving to us. We easily can say, yes, that is love. But a great deal of what God has been presented as saying and doing in the scriptures as a whole, particularly in the Old Testament, does not seem loving to us. Our passage today from Amos presents just such a problem for contemporary Christians. Perhaps by recalling that God is love, as we read Amos 9 verses 1 to 10 today, we might come to understand what Jesus and the apostles meant by love. And you'll find they did not mean what you or I mean by it. So if you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read again from the New American Standard Bible. This is Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, so they're in the temple. And he said, strike the pillar capitals so that the thresholds will shake. So these are the things that are holding up the temple, right? And break them all. Break them on the heads of them all. So the context here, right, they're in the temple. The people are worshiping God in the temple. God is standing himself by the altar, and he says, hit the pillars that hold this place up and bring it down. That's how this begins. Then I will put to death the rest of them with the sword, the ones who aren't in the temple. They will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a survivor who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, 
from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will track them down and take them from there. And though they hide themselves from my sight on the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it will kill them. And I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of armies, the one who touches the land so it quakes, and all those who live in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. Remember the waters that we talked about last week. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. That's the waters conversation, right, that we had last week. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, you sons of Israel? He's saying you're nothing special. You're like everybody else. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom and I will eliminate it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally eliminate the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say that the catastrophe will not overtake or confront us. That's a tough passage, right? See why I spent so much time? When you hear a passage like that, do you find it easy then to confess God is love? If you're an American or a Western European, as I am, then your answer is probably no. In American English, we would never use the word love to describe behaviors such as those. Many would call these hateful or vengeful behaviors. Consequently, because of that, many in our culture have decided that the God of love described in the New Testament is different than the one described by Amos. Some have argued that the Israelites were simply wrong about God and that Jesus came to correct their misapprehension. Others have argued that Israel simply invented prophecies like this after the fact so that they could explain how they lost their homeland and their autonomy. A few have argued that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are different gods altogether, and a steadily increasing number have decided that there is no God after all. And even if there were, nobody knows anything about him, everybody's guessing. Now, I can't settle the issue of whether there is a God for you. Nobody can settle that issue for you. Sadly, the scriptures can't, alone cannot even settle that for you. The scriptural writers assumed the reality of God. But I can assist you with dismissing the claim that the Old and New Testaments present contradictory descriptions of God. They do not. The behaviors described in Amos and the descriptions of Jesus and God in the New Testament are consistent. They only appear contradictory to some of us because we are using words in ways they did not intend to use them. This may be surprising, and I know it was to me when it began to settle on me, but the total destruction of Israel is, by biblical definition, an act of love if you're willing to give me your attention for the next several minutes, I will do my best to explain. There are two Hebrew words translated into English as love. 
The first is the Hebrew word ahave. Ahave. You want to try that with me? Ahave. And this word is probably closest to our English word love. It describes a preference for something, an affection for something, a desire for someone or something. It's the word used in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall ahave the Lord your God with all your heart. It's used in Leviticus 19, 18. You shall ahave your neighbor as yourself. And it's used of God in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2b through 3a. Yet I have ahaved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This word describes an action that's rooted in an internal concern or desire. But it's never used to describe the character of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that God is a a have. And it would be weird to say that. God is desire? What does that mean? The second Hebrew word translated love in English is the word for love most often associated with the character of God. It is the word chesed. Now, you have to have a cold to do this well as an English speaker, or you have to know German. If you speak German, you can do this in your sleep. Chesed. I said this to a Jewish friend of mine, and he said, you don't have to karate chop the chet there, because I was overemphasizing it. It's maybe not that strong, but I'm trying to get you to hear it. Chesed. When the Apostle John confessed that God is love, it's most likely chesed to which John was referring. How do I know? Because John's confession there in 1 John 4 that we read earlier echoes God's description of himself in Exodus chapter 34. And we've read this two other times in our series through Amos, but we're going to read it again. This is Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. That's Yahweh in Hebrew. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, New Revised Standard Version, chesed and faithfulness, keeping chesed for the thousandth generation. Now listen, listen to what chesed includes. Are you ready? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, we get that, and yet by no means clearing the guilty. They're both chesed. But visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is what love, chesed, is for the Bible. When God revealed himself to Moses, he told Moses that he abounded in chesed, and the other word in Hebrew is emet. Emet is rigidness. You remember the story? I told my kids this last night. When Moses' hands had to be held up for them to win the battle, and if they started to fall down, they would lose the battle, and he became too weak to hold his own arms up, so he got two people to come and help him. His arms in the air is emet. Rigid. So we often translate it true or faithful. Like unyielding. That's Emmet. God says that he is abounding in chesed and Emmet. And he further describes himself as keeping chesed for thousands by doing two things by forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by punishing the wicked. Both of those are how he exercises chesed and Emmet in the world. Both of those are aspects of God's love. So love for God is not only found in forgiveness, but also in punishment. 
How can that be? Well, to understand that, we must understand what it means for God to be loving, to be chesed, to be a God of chesed, of steadfast loyalty to his people and to his promises. And the context of that understanding is initially the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And that agreement included rewards for faithfulness and judgment for rebellion. I don't want to read them, but you can look them up if you want to write this down. The core list of blessings for those who remained faithful to the covenant can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. The list of curses for those who rebelled against the covenant can be found in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. In order for God to be love, to be chesed in the biblical sense, God has to be a God of chesed. That is a God who is loyal to the things he has said he would do. And that's the meaning of chesed. I ask myself, in English, how would you, what word would you use to describe somebody who always does what they say and never fails to live up to their word? What would, what would be an English word for that? The best I could come up with is trustworthy. Integrity? I don't know. Truthful, certainly. But that's what chesed means. It's hard to translate into English. In the covenant of Sinai, God promised to care for Israel in specified ways if they remained in relationship with him. A God of love, in the biblical sense, a God of chesed, will be true to his word. In the case of Israel's chesed to the covenant, God would and did bless them. However, God also promised to judge them if they rebelled against the covenant. A God of love, in the biblical sense, a God of chesed, will be true to that word as well. God does not make idle threats. He does not lie because he is a God of love, of chesed. So God's love, God's chesed, requires that rebels be judged because that's what he said he would do. God has made a promise which he claims as a self-definition. We just read it. God will chesed thousands of generations by keeping his promises which includes forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's what the sacrifices were all about in Israel. And punishing the wicked, both. Biblically, if God is a God of love, then God must be loyal to both of these promises. The verses that we read from Amos demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promise to bring judgment on the finally impenitent. That was his promise. He had to do that. His love required it. But even more, the fact that God waited over 700 years to bring that punishment also demonstrates his faithfulness to his promise to be merciful before he punished. Both love. Now that's not how we would usually use the word love in English. The only time I've ever heard an English speaker use love in that way is when somebody has cheated on their spouse and the spouse says, you said you loved me. That's about as close as I've ever heard, right? Because what they're saying is, you promised you would be faithful and you weren't. You didn't keep your word. That's about as close as I've ever heard an English speaker come to God's understanding of love. Now, we're not wrong about how we use the word love. How can we be wrong about how we use the word love? It's our language. <laughs> we use it the way we use it, and that's fine. But when we read the scriptures... We may read it in our language, but its meaning is determined by God, not by the history of American English. Whatever we mean by love is fine, but what is not fine 
is reading our meaning of love into the mouth of God or into the mouth of Jesus. That is not right. Now, some may say, well, I don't think God is chesed. Something changed. The meaning of love changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Chesed became agape in Greek. And you could argue that. But thankfully, the New Testament actually includes an entire chapter defining what love means for Christians. And do you know how it's defined? It's defined as chesed. I mean, it's right there. We usually read it at weddings. I haven't heard too many sermons on it. But we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. This is how Paul describes love in a Christian context. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It's not provoked. does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. That, that word, if it were in Hebrew, would be emet, faithfulness, the one that we talked about before. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Now, this definition is missing many components of what Westerners like us claim love to mean. We often say, for instance, that love is unconditional. How many times have I heard an American English speaker say love is unconditional? But the words love and unconditional never occur together one time in the scriptures anywhere. Even more, the definition of love by the Apostle Paul in these verses never says love is unconditional. In fact, he gives us a condition. Paul says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but that it rejoices in the truth. Love's acceptance and rejoicing, therefore, is based on truth, not based on the object of our love. It's not based on the thing or the person who is loved. It's based on the truth that God reveals. We also claim that love is tolerating differences or celebrating diversity, and I certainly do love that we have such a variety in this world of people and things and cultures, but again, love in these verses is never described in that way. Love rejoices only in righteousness, not in difference, in righteousness. Again, the love described by Paul is consistent with chesed, with the steadfast loyalty of God. The only difference between the Old and the New Testaments is that chesed in the Old Testament was loyalty to the covenant of Sinai. Whereas chesed in the New Testament is loyalty to the character of God as revealed in Jesus. Therefore, love must be patient and it must be kind. Love is not envious or self-congratulatory, nor is it prideful, sinful, selfish, or short-tempered. Instead, love is forgiving, always rejoicing in what God says is right and true. Love is not gossipy, it's not distrustful, it's not desperate, but instead it is always steadfast. This is love for the Bible. It is chesed. This is who God is. So when John told us to love one another, what he meant to say is not that we should be unconditionally accepting of another person's values or words or behaviors, nor was he instructing us to celebrate differences for the sake of diversity or to rejoice in whatever the person themselves finds to be praiseworthy. 
That's idolatry, actually. If you do that, you worship the person. <sighs> when John told us to love one another, a way of life he learned from Jesus, he meant what Paul has explained. We're to be patient with each other. We're to be kind to each other. We're not to be jealous of each other. We're not to brag about ourselves. We're not to think of ourselves as better than other people. We're not to behave disgracefully, sinfully is the word there, for other, against other people. We're not to act selfishly. We're not to be easily angered by what other people say or do to us. We're not to keep a record of the wrongs that have been done to us. We're not to rejoice in unrighteousness in anyone, not in somebody else and not in myself. But we are always to rejoice in faithfulness, in truth, whether we see it in myself or even in my enemy, because even wicked people can do things that are honoring to God. And if I see that, I can praise that. We are to keep confidences. We're to believe in each other. We are to hope for each other. And we are to endure with each other. Another way to say that would be to put up with each other. And we must never relent with these things. Why? Because this is who God is. This is what he does for us. It may be a bitter pill to swallow, but this love of God does not disqualify judgment, rejection, or final condemnation. In fact, the chesed of God demands these things for those who remain finally in rebellion. Long ago, God made a promise to which the chesed of God requires him to be faithful. It can be found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on that day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. But we are still here. Humankind has not died. Not yet. Even more, by the grace of God, a way has been made to the tree of life so that some humans may not die. For these humans, Jesus himself can fulfill this promise of God by dying in their stead. However, for those who do not put faith in Jesus, which is defined, you remember our conversation last week, by those who deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. All that remains is the promise of God to Adam. You will certainly die. Because God is chesed, God must and will do what he has said. If he didn't, he would not be love. He would be a liar. And the opposite of love in the Bible is lying. That's the opposite. Which is why Satan is the father of lies. And God is love. And this is where Israel found themselves in Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The long centuries of God's merciful forbearance were exhausted. And all that remained was God's love, God's chesed, God's loyalty to his promise to destroy those who finally would not turn from their rebellions. And this explains God's desperateness. Why won't you listen to me? Why won't you turn? Why are you insisting that I do this to you? I do not want to do this to you. For generations I have called you back to myself, but you would not listen. Or as Jesus Jesus says, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. Like this, the passion of God is because they are forcing his hand. And because he's love, he has to do it. And yet we live as people in this world thinking that he will be a liar in the end. 
that in the end he will not do as he threatened, that in the end he's like our parents who said they would do something to scare us but will never do it. But our God is not a liar. Satan is the liar. Our God speaks truth and he never makes idle threats. And because God is love, chesed, because he is trustworthy, he allowed the northern kingdom of Israel to be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. Now we might say in conclusion, but that's not the love of Jesus. Maybe that's the love of God, but that's not the love of Jesus. After all, didn't we read earlier from the Gospel of John that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it? And yes, we did. I hope you understand what he means. Jesus, like Amos, was sent to save the nation by calling them to repentance. What did he say everywhere he went? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Even more, unlike Amos, praise be to God, Jesus was also willing and able to fulfill God's promise in the Garden of Eden and die in place of those who place faith in him by returning to God, by denying themselves, taking up their crosses and following Jesus. Even so, Jesus himself warned that those who did not follow him, who would not follow him, would receive the other side of the love of God. God's faithfulness to his promise to remove evil from his good creation, and he will do it. So now that we've had that conversation, we're going to conclude with a teaching of Jesus. This is from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. It's one of the last parables Jesus told before he was crucified. Hear the word of Jesus. And ask yourself, does this sound like the God who spoke to Amos? Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who've been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened cattle are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their separate ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Now the king was angry, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Tie his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place, for many are called, but few are chosen. Is it any wonder they killed him? Is it any wonder if that's what he's teaching? But the people had forgotten that God always tells the truth. That's why we are saved. Because he promised not to give up on us. But it's also why, in the end, we must be destroyed if we will not return to him. Because God is love, we can repent. If he weren't love, we have no shot. But because he is love, we must repent. Because he will do 
as he said.